you know, if you're an architect or an architecture student and you have to go make stuff, I want this to haunt you. <laughs> like, I want this to like weigh on your mind so that you, you re recognize that there's a responsibility to what it is that you're doing. The strategies and techniques, they're not apolitical, but they are born of a political moment. They bear that signature and they tend to reproduce those conditions in our mind because elite cultures tend to reproduce themselves. And so if nothing else comes from this, I'd at least want that moment of hesitation when someone's designing so that, you know, 50 years from then, nobody has to critique you. They can critique you for some other things. My name is Charles Davis. I'm an assistant professor of architectural history and criticism at University of Buffalo SUNY. And I'm the author of the book, Building Character, The Racial Politics of Modern Architectural Style. In some ways, building character is really an exploration of how Americans, North Americans particularly, dealt with this, this crisis of understanding what whiteness was becoming in the late 19th and early 20th century. And this march from Anglo-Americans continuing Anglo-Saxon identity as the leaders of the free world to the consolidation of whiteness, where like, no one speaks their mother tongue from their, their native homeland anymore. We just all speak English. There's a kind of common culture, uh, American culture, that one assimilates to, and that this is what people blend into. And when I look at the history of North American architecture in those terms, and I specifically highlight the racial discourses, the white nativist discourses that accompanied Manifest Destiny and other forms of white settler colonialism, it allows me to introduce an intellectual history for modern architecture that's very different. It's race conscious. And so it shows how the architectures that we say are American architectures, and they're architectures of democracy, and architectures for all people. It actually helps us to understand who were the people that they were built for. And if they have become pluralized, how did they become that way? So the way this book works is that I've narrowed in on the heuristic function of character, that term, within architectural discourse and then in scientific discourses. And those were the discourses that were used to legitimize the kind of colonial politics and et cetera as a way of finding a parallel between the two. And so where was the one place where the human body and the building were sort of intrinsically tied with one another? You know, you go back to Vitruvian architectural theory, that's where it, it absolutely is present. But then, based on the histories that we've told since then, there seems to be like an idea that this just dropped off of the cliff. And we started thinking scientifically, rationally, and we no longer looked at the body. But then when I would read the architectural works, they still talked about bodily concepts, corporeality, character, the visage of the building as a facade, the bones of the building carrying the skin of the building. And so I'm like, well, why is there still this kind of corporeal metaphor to architecture if we no longer needed the body? And so I try to reconstruct the human body metaphors that are latent in this late 19th century architectural style theory as a way of understanding the continuity of the human body metaphors. And then alongside that, I understand how the human body in scientific rational terms becomes an explicitly racialized body, a biological body, both in terms of the ways that we understand it 
from the physiological standpoint, but also in the ways that we understand it through the, this notion of national genius or national character. And so character then allows me to both look at it in architecture and in the sciences as a sort of dual discourse that is continuing to feed each other. And so as we're getting over the drug of Vitruvianism, we're giving ourselves a new drug, which is scientific race theory, biology, racial anthropology. Uh, we feel like we're inventing a new modern history of the present, but the body then transforms itself to be explicitly useful as a political tool for representing the uniqueness of national identity. I actually looked at a paradigm in architecture called architectural organicism, which is really a field of design with a philosophy of making that imitates nature. And so I thought with this idea of nature sort of metaphorically transforming the building, I can understand the building as a body in the ways that we were beginning to re-understand the human body. So within the field of architectural organicism, I look at the French architect Eugène-Emmanuel Viollet-le-Duc, who inaugurated the field of structural rationalism, going from these archaeological and zoological reconstructions of dinosaurs, looking at the ways that the bones could be used to think about the structure of the whole dinosaur and then to put skin around it. He did the same thing when he reconstructed the history of the Gothic cathedral. And looking at people like Gottfried Semper, whose equal focus on structure and ornament, the tie-in between the two, inaugurated the field of tectonics in Germany. So this idea that architecture is the most utilitarian art form of them all, and that ornament expresses the utilitarianism within that space. But he situated this history within an ethnographical framework. And then when this work goes into the United States, then folks like Lewis Sullivan, take it over. He invents a form of floral ornament that seems to be completely cut off and not inspired by historical ornament at all. And so because he invented it himself, he felt that it was uniquely American. And so there's a kind of aesthetic philosophy on how to produce a unique American aesthetic. And then I look at the ways that his work influenced Frank Lloyd Wright and his complex notion of space within this ethnographical framework. And then once I felt like I substantiated the actual racial charge of architectural organicism, then I wanted to solve the problem of whether we still had race and style coming together without ornament. And so I looked at somebody who was able to Americanize this international style in the figure of William Lascaz, who designed public housing, because he was inspired by organicists in Europe and because he thought of public housing as mass housing. So it was, a, it was an organic expression of this new international culture that was shared by the masses. So I purposefully relied upon and critiqued some of the, the most canonical figures, some of the most sacred cows of our field. Because if I could critique them properly, then there's no way you can write another history on them without dealing with the racial discourses that they used. I've debated in my mind the politics of representation for this book. Because for contemporary audiences, we tend not to see race unless we see a non-white figure, and particularly a black figure, in the space. But in the 19th century, they saw race when there were white figures in the space. And so how do I get someone to appreciate the fact that a white space is racialized? And I purposefully started the first two chapters with no black subjects at all. 
There are Jewish subjects in the Semper chapter, and there are Hindu subjects in the Viola Le Duc chapter. But these are the ways that they would triangulate what it meant to be Aryan. In a way, I'm trying to get the reader to understand what race meant at that time period. And if we can understand the long history of race, I feel like then we can understand how it transforms into what we know today. So that's why I don't talk about black bodies in North America until I've finished talking about white bodies in Europe so that people understand that, well, it's not just black and white. It's also who's supposed to be white. And once we figured that out, then we, we would deal with more forthrightly where the black subject should be. But at least in my narrative of this, black subjects had no purposeful place. You know, they were always misplaced and marginalized, and we didn't quite know what to do with them. So as we were theorizing what to do with white subjects and how to assimilate them, we usually just assumed that black subjects couldn't assimilate. Like, what is there to think about? There's nothing, like Viola de Duke literally says, they have no culture, they have no history, there's nothing to talk about. It's two sentences. When we understand that, then I think that our fixation with black bodies is a contemporary phenomenon. It's one that's a post-civil rights you know, post-Jim Crow, um, Black Lives Matter kind of articulation of race that comes from hundreds of years of struggle, of fighting for a kind of acknowledgement of their humanity. I come to this project with the assumption that architecture is a socially inflected art form and it is a socially productive art form. So we use it both to analyze the past and to produce the future. And that that is what its function is in society. So it is always political, it is always social and cultural, and that within that mode, it can be used to construct whiteness, it can be used to construct blackness, it can be used to construct an Asian identity. Like there are ways that architecture has a wonderful capacity to aesthetically reflect the social values of a people. And I don't know why architects feel like they have to speak for everyone in this kind of you know, weird way. I understand it as an aspirational goal that we should have, but don't buy the myth. I actually think it's a good thing that these guys tried to make an architecture that was expressed of their identity. It just so happened that they were fixated on whiteness, and that's what I emphasize. But I think that they've given us the tools to create a countercultural space, one for people of color, if we pay attention. Charles Davis's book, Building Character, The Racial Politics of Modern Architectural Style, is out now from University of Pittsburgh Press. Recommendations for further reading are on the episode page at thinkbelt.org slash interstitial. Sign up for the newsletter while you're there. Interstitial is available wherever you list a podcast. To the 58% of you that listen on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. Sound design for Interstitial is by Sam Clapp. I'm David Huber. More next week.